You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 62 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herwoman, and with me like a Wookiee with a life debt, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. <laughs> hey, hey, guys. I just finished watching the finale. Nah, I'm kidding. Hey, guys. Uh, Nathan here. Glad to be back. I, I'll admit it. I cried like a like a baby i mean i brought my daughter in to watch that finale and then she cried i'm just like i'm sorry i didn't mean to make you cry i thought i was just being emotional i thought it was my day to be emotional apparently it's sad joe and we will get to more of that i mean i know that this season that we'll be covering here is going to be touching on some elements of that but we're going to kind of keep it spoiler free in that regard because uh, we are you know clicking right along and here in a minute we're going to be doing season five i believe in two more episodes how about that nathan i mean you know we talked about doing this and here we are we're about to recap the entire season <laughs> I love this. This is awesome. Yeah, it makes it much easier when we're dealing with one season at a time, though trying to get that in an hour has been an interesting experience. And speaking of that, we've had some changes. You may have uh, heard that in the opening here. Uh, we're no longer airing on Middle Earth Network. Instead, they're just going to be linking right to the website, StarWarsReport.com. So uh, that's no longer part of our little spiel at the beginning anymore. Uh, but here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long, long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we banter about the Clone Wars. We're going to continue to look at the seasons one at a time. This week, we're looking at season three of the smash hit, sometimes controversial, Clone Wars TV animated series. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, and sentients of all species, because here we go. Right, and this is an unusual season because this is a season that chronologically gets split. We have nine regular episodes that take place, honestly, all freaking over the place uh, during the early part of the Clone Wars, during the stuff and in between the stuff that we saw back in seasons one and two. But then we also then jump ahead to a time that Leland Chi has confirmed is at least a couple of years or so uh, after those prior events, so within about that last year or so leading up to Revenge of the Sith, uh, in which we are, of course, dealing with uh, a more mature Ahsoka, different character models for the individual characters, somewhat more mature themes, and fortunately, minus one hiccup in Season 5, episodes that are actually airing in chronological continuity order. But this season starts out with Clone Cadets, and uh, it was actually aired as a one- our special was Clone Cadets and ARC Troopers back-to-back -back on Cartoon Network, but of course, that's not the way they're supposed to take place. You see, Clone Cadets is actually the first episode of the cartoon series to take place after the Clone Wars movie, right? It's um, Cat and Mouse, the hidden enemy, then the film, then Clone Cadets. Okay? Uh, as for... Arc Troopers, that is quite a while later. Uh, you may recall that last season, or last episode when we were talking, I mentioned how basically 
most of the episodes of season two end, and then they work in the first batch of Mandalorian episodes from season two, followed immediately by the second batch of those from season three. Well, between the ending of season two, the Boba Fett stuff, with uh, Lethal Trackdown being the last of those, and the beginning of that three-part Mandalorian arc from season two that starts with the Mandalore plot, sandwiched in between are two episodes from this season, Sphere of Influence and the one I'm getting at here, Arc Troopers. So for those who say, you know, how is it that these happen essentially back-to-back? Well, they don't. And in fact, they're part of essentially a quasi-trilogy with rookies being the middle portion. So we begin the season already with some chronological shuffling. As you can tell, this is going to frustrate the heck out of us. I mean, that's a constant theme here. And, you know, for those of you that don't like hearing us complain about it, keep in mind, we didn't cause this. <laughs> We're just reacting to it. Uh, you know, when we get to clone cadets, I, I like that episode for the EU aspect of it. I mean, you know, we're back on Camino. We get to watch the clones. We get to see a bad batch. Uh, you know, there was one little thing in there that had me slightly worried, and that was uh, the clone 99, the elderly clone, the the uh, the bad oh. batcher or whatever they called him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was defective, but they kept him around kind of like it's a janitor, but. The thing about him that always kind of perplexed me was, was he a clone that happened after the Null Arc batch or before? And it seemed like they were trying to hint that he was before, but I immediately retconned it. He had to be after. And so, you know, it was one of those things that they, they kind of didn't really focus too deeply on him. And I'm glad for that, because I think, you know, sometimes there are certain times that when you define certain characters for the TV show, that by defining them, you are actually destroying or unraveling that character's continuity because, Typically, the people that are doing those changes aren't paying attention to everything. They're just looking at the more popular things. That's right. Now, for the, the Clone Wars cartoon series continuity, this actually was a pretty big deal at the time. Uh, we got to see Domino Squad, getting a name for them, prior to the events of Rookies. So we see how they're trained. We see how clones in general are being trained. And, of course, as soon as we saw these characters and heard their names, we knew that they were the same ones that would have appeared uh, in Rookies back in Season 1. And then it's followed up by ARC Troopers. Uh, ARC Troopers gives us that great battle of Kamino with it's pro- really the biggest set-piece battle type of situation that we had seen in the series up to this point. I mean, it really was a well-done well done, excuse me, setup here. Um, lots of great uh, battle sequences. We get to see uh, promotions to ARC Troopers for some of our characters, which does leave you saying, wait a second, they can be promoted? Tark Trooper, as opposed to just being designed that way as far as how much uh, uh, free will, essentially, that the troopers had, but apparently so. See, that kind of made sense to me because we had Karen do something similar with one of the regular clones. I Mm. can't remember his name. He had his arms blown off, but they brought him in and made him a commando. And I recall similar things like that, like if the clone showed enough initiative, the arcs themselves would adopt him into their group, but... I, I like that there was also the, the aspect of which battle of Camino was this, because we've got the video games that have battles of Camino and other things of that nature where we've seen battles on Camino. I remember that when that came out, I was like, okay, is this before or after the one I played in, in the Battlefront game? Or the one that's in Republic. There's a lot of battles of Camino. But honestly, to me, that wasn't such a big deal because it makes sense. I mean, if that's where the clone army is coming from, that one central location then, of course, the Separatists are going to constantly try to go after it, very much like we see them going after droid factories and whatnot, though you can take the droid factories and spread out where they are. 
and make them you know harder to find, uh, spread your resources here. Here, basically, the Republic has all its eggs, or fertilized eggs, as the case may be, <laughs> uh, in uh, the one basket here. But yes, I, I think that was a great start to this season, albeit uh, an odd one in that we got essentially the first and last part of a three-part story that spans over a long period of time, whereas we already got part one back in season one, or part two back in season one. Although th that is not the last time that's going to happen this season, believe it or not, uh, crazy as that may be. We then move into a sort of a, a quasi-standalone episode, or what at least in this season acts like a standalone episode, which is supply lines, only to realize... A couple of things, that uh, Supply Lines is actually the second episode taking place after the Clone Wars film. It's Clone Cadets, then Supply Lines, and Supply Lines is setting up the events of Ambush. Uh, although, in doing so, it creates a few different things. It gives us uh, Jedi Master I'm a Gun Die, which was funny, I guess, uh, as his name, a uh, name for what's going to happen to him. It shows us that the battle on Ryloth did not just start near the end of Season 1. It was actually starting at the beginning of Season 1 and was something that had continued, which sort of makes sense for why uh, Shamsandula would think that the Republic had sort of abandoned them during the course of the mid-part of the season and whatnot. And it gives us uh, more action and activities for Jar Jar, for Bail Organa, which was kind of cool. But it does seem... And I'd have to go back and look at exactly how this works. Um, but as I recall, Ambush had a webcomic with it called Prelude that was supposed to give the reason why Yoda was able to meet with King Katunko on Ragosa. And here, Supply Lines gives us another version of that same concept, except in a way that is different. Uh, it gives us essentially the idea of this episode is why he's willing to meet with Yoda, not what we saw back in the webcomic, which makes me wonder... At what point was this story written? Not produced, but written, because they were writing essentially two different explanations for the same thing that did not coincide with each other and makes it kind of kind mm. of odd. But, you know, that's that's sort of the, the nature of the beast when it came to those season one webcomics. Sometimes they worked and sometimes they seemed to have contradicted what they were trying to fit in with directly here. Well, it almost makes you wonder, when did they stop trying to make things fit in? Because it seems like after the Gendy Clone Wars series and they came out with this one, it was like, ah, to hell with all continuity at this point. Let's just let's just do it over. You know, I mean, it, it definitely felt like Lucas decided, ah, everything that came before, we're just going to scratch most of that. If you can find a way to keep it, that works. But this is my Star Wars vision now, and we're going to roll with that. And it seems like that became the business model around the same time. It was like, you know, you had this big push in the late 90s about the whole, the EU's one continuity, even though we had earlier things that didn't quite always jive, but we had ways to make it all work. But it seemed like once the Clone Wars television show, the second one came out, the trying aspect became less trying, more, uh, we'll wait till this is all done and then we'll put it back together. Yeah, I think that sort of is, I mean, from a broad scheme of things, I mean, that is the way that they're having to approach this. Nobody knows at this point what the fate is, at least they haven't announced anything, about what the fate is of Season 6. We don't know where that's going to wind up going. We may have just seen a way to finally deal with the whole whatever happened to Ahsoka by the time of Revenge of the Sith question based on the end of Season 5, while at the same time Season 5's ending manages to dash at least some comics uh, and shift parts of some books out of the way. Um, it's kind of like, you know what? We give. 
right? Lucas is going to do what Lucas is going to do. Filoni is going to do what Filoni is going to do. Though I have, I have to say it's kind of interesting that in the feature it released actually with the season finale on StarWars.com, you have Dave Filoni talking about how he wants Ahsoka to live at the end of the series. Lucas wants her to die, and he is setting things up to try to get his way. Filoni, that is, which makes me wonder just how much of this is Filoni, how much of this is Lucas, uh, and to what extent any of this stuff is really set in stone ahead of time. And if you've got something that doesn't have a lot of stuff set in stone that they can pass along to, say, Leland Chi, then, of course, we're going to have these types of, of, of contradictions popping up. But I like the fact that at least you could take the films themselves and the cartoon series, and that's it, and watch that and enjoy it as if it were just a continuity in and of itself. I'm still an advocate of saying that that's the way that they should do it as opposed to trying to fit everything with the previous stuff, but I highly, highly doubt that that is going to happen. See, and I keep leaning more towards a multiverse setup where, where like how you say the movies and those films could fit together. You could have another one where all the films, including this new sequel trilogy and this all fit together. You could have one where the sequel trilogy is doing its own thing. The original films are doing their own thing. The clones. I mean, there's so many different ways that you could break it down. Just the way that the, the canon levels have been broke down. I, it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you scratch your heads and so often and, and you just wonder why. I get back to that whole now that Disney is, is running it, you know, we have, have grown accustomed to watching one man play fickle. Now we've got a board of men and women playing fickle. And, you know, I mean, imagine how often we get irritated when George was, was messing and tampering with things. Now we're going to have people voting off of a majority vote as to what we're going to do. And we've got the George Lucas treatments, which they can use, or they could just use and just say, oh, this is the George treatment and slap that on everything. I, I, the, the way that it's going forward in the Disney aspect, I'm very curious to see how it rolls. You know, getting back to season three, though. There were also some other cool things with Lucas that we saw this this uh, time around. I believe it was episode four of season three, Spear of Influence. That was uh, Katie Lucas's first foray as a writer, I believe. I mean, she may have, have had some other little bits that she's helped with. This is before she really gets into the later episodes of the Night Sisters, where she really kind of gets a lot of credit for a, a lot of stuff, which will, I know Nathan has got a lot on that. He, he's hoping to probably touch the deals more with the EU and, and uh, the founding of Night Sisters and stuff like that. But I, I have to say, despite the bouncing around, this season was the one that I realized this show is going to do well. I mean, they were really botching up the whole continuity of, and it got, I think, to the point where, like as Nathan said, we give. We got to a point where we're not trying to line things up. We're not asking, where's our, our chronological order yet? You know, Leland was saying things like, it's going to come. Don't worry. It will come. We got a plan. And basically the plan was we're going to wait for this to settle. And I really, I, I got to say, from a longtime fan, that's the smartest way to go about it. I mean, you know, we've watched in these first two seasons, first three seasons, these episodes that seem like one-offs, and then, oh, wait, what? That's the second of a three-part arc? Wait, what? So all of a sudden, every one shot that you've seen is potentially a larger story. And, and that aspect adds mystery, and that is the one thing about Star Wars that I've always loved. What comes next? And The Clone Wars has definitely got that aspect down. Well, Sphere of Influence was an unusual one. It gave us the characters, you know, Baron Pompanoida, we got Chi Ekwe, we basically got the Lucas family as presented in cameos, uh, or at least most of the Lucas family, as presented in cameos back in Revenge of the Sith, here as characters in the show, and gave us sort of a quick, you know, sort of a kidnapping uh, chase type of story. I actually really liked the episode. I thought it was kind of cool to see a George Lucas-style character uh, being involved in the midst of battle, but... 
We have the chronological placement issue again. Remember, this is the one where I just mentioned a moment ago how ARC Troopers is basically set between the end of Season 2 episodes and the Mandalore episodes from Season 2 that are actually shifted to after that season is over with. Well, right before ARC Troopers in that little gap is Sphere of Influence that they've told us based on some kind of background comments and whatnot. And this was the episode that while giving us some fun stuff, you know, we had Ryu Chuchi in there back again from Trespass and all. Uh, we have Katie Lucas in here. It's actually only the second one she's ever written, having written uh, Jedi Crash before. But this is really when she gets going is this season. Lucas decides that one of the people involved is Greedo. Greedo. And this was the... Uh, it, it's funny because I remember vividly the way that they advertised this and we mocked it mercilessly on Republic Forces Radio Network which where they ended with and Greedo yes we said Greedo and it's like they expected us to go woohoo it's Greedo when instead it was that Bugs Bunny kind of thing going on because it makes no sense you don't need it to be Greedo at all because the character does virtually nothing in the episode compared to the other ones around it. It could have been anyone other than Greedo. Now, we know we had the whole issue where there was Greedo's backstory in the EU based on just his appearance and his clumsiness in A New Hope, and they created that backstory, A Hunter's Fate, uh, for Tales from the Most Eisley Cantina. And that was his assumed background. And then later, for the web strips, they wound up going through and creating a web strip version of that short story. And there was a lot of concern, though, for a while, back in the, the late 90s, because Lucas had included Greedo, uh, a young Greedo, in his uh, script for Episode 1. It actually was a scene that wound up getting filmed. It was later included on the deleted scenes, but it was removed from uh, the film and did show up in some of the adaptation. There was that question of, well, is this really Greedo, uh, this kid that Anakin winds up getting into a scuffle with? Because if so, then that changes the nature of of Greedo's backstory, or at least the timing of Greedo's backstory from A Hunter's Fate. And their response, uh, continuity model was, well, what we're going to say is that that's Greedo the Elder, and the Greedo we see in the uh, New Hope is Greedo the Younger, essentially. That they are two different characters of the same name from the same family line, but that way they can both exist without screwing up prior continuity. And now, here's Greedo dropped into T-Cannon, which makes the appearance in Phantom Menace actually the same Greedo as the one in A New Hope, and boom, goodbye, A Hunter's Fate in both of its incarnations. And I, un I understand that at times they are going to shift the continuity because they want to do something in the show that Lucas just wants to do and finds it interesting and thinks it'd be something to serve the story, and the EU must be subordinate to that. They are playing in his sandbox it is his rules that apply. He can go through and knock over their sandcastles at any time. But it annoys the living hell out of me when they do it for what appears to be a pointless reason. Did that need to be Greedo? No. Why was it Greedo? Lucas thought it'd be Nido. No! It didn't need to be there. That's one of these examples of this series trampling over previously existing continuity in a way that did not serve the story but serve to anger EU fans out there. Fortunately, they don't do this as much later, or at least when they do it, it's with real story purpose. But this just felt frivolous and such. It's a fun episode, but for the continuity-minded, the EU-minded, as our audience tends to be, mm -hmm. it was a ridiculous moment. 
See, I remember, you know, I remember watching you and some others that, that knew more about those other tales going, wait, whoa. And, and I remember realizing that most of these issues that really rile up the EU fandom, it comes down to, have you read those other works? If you have, you feel invested. If you haven't, you're just like, okay, I haven't read that one yet, so it's not bothering me. That's how I was. I was like, I don't remember these these other Greedo stories, so it wasn't really bothering me that much. But that marketing that we said Greedo, it, it definitely felt like they were purposely trying to divide the fans. Like, yeah, yeah, EU fans, we said Greedo. We're screwing up your continuity. How do you like that? You know, I mean, granted, that's not the way they were doing it, but that's how it felt. And then you would have this group of fans that hated the EU or hated, even more importantly, that the EU fans were disliking the fact that the show was hurting their favored Star Wars. And so it became an us versus them thing. And, you know, I hate that kind of division. And it just seems like, you know, it was like one of those things that they were kind of fostering it with this whole tongue in cheek aspect. You know, like we get later where there's this whole aspect. And I know Nathan's going to go more onto this where Filoni's talking about Mortis and we get a whole eh, kind of thing. And, and there's a lot of that where it's like, really, you're really going to do that to your fan base when you're sitting here chopping the episodes up, making it very confusing as heck. And you've got people like Nathan P. Butler here that does timelining for, you know, a side job, not getting paid, but for his own enjoyment. And even he is having a hard time putting this together. Are you going to make fun of that? That's not cool. <laughs> That, that was the thing about it that really annoyed the heck out of me. I mean, even in season five, we have a line where one person talks about uh, trust and talks about how uh, trust is worthless and, and, and mentioned the council. And I kept thinking, wow, this is the powers that decide, you know, what we're going to do with continuity right here. <laughs> and trust is overrated. Like, you know, they don't really care. I mean, it, it, it becomes easy to start reading into things when you see this division and you feel like, why don't they care? Why was this so pointless? It could have been anyone, like Nathan said. And I think that's where, you know, as an EU fan, we start to get irritated with that desire to draw in new fans just by basically crapping on what came before. But we need to bring in some new fans. So let's take something from the original trilogy and cram it in there, even if it doesn't need to be there. But that'll bring them in because, hey, there were some fans that liked that in the old trilogy. And that gets me worried in the aspect of I hope Disney doesn't decide to continue to do the same thing. You know, Nathan was mentioning about playing in Lucas's sandbox. The sandbox has changed. We haven't heard anything about how the rules have changed. As far as we know, the rules are still the same. The only difference is, is that now there's 12 kids playing Lucas behind a board of directors or whatever at Disney. So I'm very curious how that format is going to work because it's changed hands. And as being a person that worked for a company that changed hands, the rules change. They're very clear on when the rules stay the same as well. We have not got that here. Okay. We're still playing around like the status quo is the status quo. And I question why, why should we be giving Disney the same Canon level affordability that we've been giving Lucas all this time? I mean, at this point, I would almost say star Wars is large enough that the fans can say, what their canon level is. It's time to go intellectually dishonest. I don't know. Maybe it's just a, a coping mechanism. Yeesh. It's scary. It's scary, frankly. Um, okay, so we know that that was an interesting episode uh, from at least a continuity perspective. Um, the next pair of episodes actually were uh, a continuity thing in and of themselves, albeit only briefly, or I guess a chronological thing, only briefly. Uh, they are Corruption and The Academy. They make up the second round of Mandalorian episodes. So you end most of Season 2, it's Sphere of Influence and then Arc Troopers, and then we get the first Mandalorian arc from Season 2, and now in Season 3, we get this two-episode arc, Corruption and 
the Academy, which of course sends Ahsoka back to Mandalore. We meet the uh, the cadets or, or the students that she has at the Academy, who some of whom will come back later and help out in season five. And we see the black market actions that wind up eventually bringing down Prime Minister Almec, who will also be being set up here for the way that he winds up appearing in season five. Um, what strikes me about this, or what stands out to me about this, for those who are interested in chronology and continuity and all, is that really, really early on, okay, we're say we're well before it was, I actually saw print. Um, I'd got a chance to see a list of the Clone Wars episodes in the correct chronological order. It was actually around the middle point of this season, once the time jump and everything happened, and it, it kind of gave me hope that they really did have a plan for how this was going to work. And in that original list, they had the two Mandalorian arcs backwards, so that this one came first and the one from Season 2 came second. And that was an issue because some of the situations set up in the arc here in Season 3 were based on previous events in the second season. You know, like, why can't Ahsoka carry her lightsaber and act as a Jedi in a full way? Well, because of what happened the last time a Jedi was there, referencing Obi-Wan Kenobi um, back in Season 2. And I had mentioned that. He said, yeah, yeah, we noticed it. We're going to flip it around. And I think that's probably the same list that was then given to Ryder Wyndham when he was writing the Ultimate Visual Guide Updated and Expanded. Because that is the first source that we were given that puts the episodes of this series in the correct or pretty close to correct chronological order. So you need to just go through and look through that section on the Clone Wars, look at the order in which they talk about the individual episodes. Yes, this is the episode order. And it matched exactly with um, what was shown before. Except that error was still there. So if you look at the visual guide, updated and expanded, it has the Mandalorian episodes in the incorrect order, the reversed order. Everything else seems to be correct based on previous uh, information and based on what we're seeing coming from Leland Chiano's blog post now on the official Star Wars blog. But if you are trying to use that updated visual guide as your guide to the episode order, it's a great reference for that, except at this point when they had these two flipped around. Generally speaking, I like these episodes, and I think it's even cooler now to see them with Almec being brought down here, knowing how he will eventually wind up coming back in Season 5 a couple years later. See, for me, I found these episodes were kind of, meh. You know, they serve more as plot-moving episodes. You know, the ones that kind of, you need these episodes to get more payment later, which I will say in that regard, they, they 110% succeeded. By the time we got to Lawless, the things that were set up in these episodes really paid. I mean, they were, they were, most of the time they weren't even mentioned, they were just shown. And it, because you've seen these episodes, you knew what they were, who they were, what they were doing, why they were doing. And then they would give you a little more thing. You would find out who certain ants were of certain people like Corky, things like that. I, I just I, I like that aspect of it. But when I remember when I watched these episodes, I was very underwhelmed. I was like I was expecting more from Mandalore. I, and I, keep in mind, at this point, I was watching the Mandalorian episodes with X-ray glasses. Like, OK, I got to I mean, what's going on here? Because, you know, there was that pandemonium panic of is this going to botch something else i mean that that i think is to me the worrying aspect of this is when they do the things like greedo and things like that it's like okay now you're watching it not just to enjoy but also out of worry as to what else could they possibly be botching up for no apparent reason and that no apparent reason part is where you know, fans like me and nathan would tend to get a little more angry it's like why why would you could have substituted anybody 
You could have created a really cool new character, but no, you had to go with somebody that Lucas already thought up. Very unoriginal. And that aspect, you know, it's a very frustrating spot to be at. This is true, but I mean, we did get the the great uh, thrill of seeing uh, a danger to the children of Mandalore, the black market being uh, somewhat behind it all. And of course, the fact that, I guess, Mountain Dew can kill people. <laughs> Mountain Dew, I love it. Uh, our next one was Assassin, I believe. This is uh, our, our second time with Aurora Singh showing back up, or was this our third? Well, last time we saw her was in the season finale of season two that ended with Lethal Track Down here, but we did see her briefly, I believe it was, in Hostage Crisis, which makes sense because we're in sort of a chronological run here. The events of the Academy give Ahsoka sort of a, a good reputation for that particular mission. Because of her success on that mission, she winds up taking part in the mission in Assassin. Assassin ends with Zero the Hutt claiming that he's going to get revenge, which leads directly into evil plans, which leads into, of all things, freaking Hostage Crisis, the season one finale, finally getting the rest of the story put around it, and then the post-Hostage Crisis story hunt for Zero, which winds up being the last one chronologically prior to the time jump. So we're in the midst of a nice long run here in which Aura Singh is making, you're right, is it the second or third appearance? Who freaking knew at the time? <laughs> because this was her third appearance in the series, but chronologically, Hostage Crisis hasn't happened yet. So it's her second. So in answer to your question, is it the second or the third? Uh, yes. <laughs> I actually, I thought this was a really fun episode. I liked how... Ahsoka was having visions, you know, someone's going to kill Padme. We got to, we got to protect her. And and that was cool. You know, it was like, wow, Padawan Atano has an ability kind of like what uh, Mr. Skywalker's got, you know, Hey, cool. Birds of a feather and all that. Plus it gave Ahsoka and Padme another opportunity to get closer. I mean, at the very end of season five, there is a, a, I know moment kind of uh, reminiscent to empire strikes back, but not so lovey dovey. And I, I think episodes like this really kind of build into those moments that we get later. And, and I love that. I, I think that's the thing I love. I, I've always loved when it comes to Star Wars is how they take these little things and they, and they thread them through and they work them together. Granted, sometimes you'll hear me complain about how it's a little oversaturation with the I've got a bad feeling about this. But when it's done right, it's done right. And and that's the beauty of it. And and Assassin was a great episode for Ahsoka Tano's character especially. I mean we see her get some character development. We watch her with Pat or with uh, Padme kind of building a friendship, growing in that regard. I always love it when we get stuff like that. You have to agree, this episode and Heroes on Both Sides were the ones that really stood out to me. As soon as I saw or heard that last pair of words uttered in the season five finale, I was thinking back to this, and it answered a big question that many of us uh, have had for a long time about you know, how blind can she possibly be? Um, but yeah, I really like this episode. I like the fact that it gives Ahsoka a chance to shine near the end of the first chunk time-wise of the series. So we see that character growth in her right before we get a jump where she is a an older character, a wiser character a couple of years later. Of course, this led us into the somewhat goofy uh, C-3PO is captured and interrogated by Cad Bane episode that manages to set up Hostage Crisis, which really should have been aired with it and Hunt for Zero, 
quite, quite frankly here. Um, evil Plans, which I thought was uh, kind of cool. I mean, again, I'm not a big fan of the idea that you're going to tell the middle part of a story and then two years later tell the first and the last parts of the story. I mean, it's very much like what uh, Lucas said in the early 80s he was going to do, right? I'm going to tell the middle of the story, then go back and tell the prequels, and then I'll tell a sequel to the story, and then you'll know what the hell's going on. Um, but I will say that, you know, looking at it, looking back, when you can actually watch these episodes together, I think they work fairly well. Uh, and Evil Plans makes for a good uh, ramp up into Hostage Crisis to let us know just why it was that he was able to do what he did in the Senate, uh, given how much security they, in theory, should have had. So it kind of made Hostage Crisis work better to finally see this two years after the fact. Yeah, and then by the time we get to Hunt for Zero, I, I remember that was an an issue, an episode that really, I don't know, perplexed me. I remember up to that point thinking huts were almost invincible, near near unkillable almost. I mean, you had to either choke them with a chain or, you know, poison them with a lot, a lot, a lot of poison. Uh, I recall, you know, that they their skin was so tough that blasters could not pierce them up until I watched Hunt for Zero, and then I had to unlearn what I thought I had learned before. Uh, but I always liked Zero as a character. I mean, granted, he, he always kind of had that way of getting on your, your annoying death nerve, if he would. <laughs> but I, I always thought, you know, the way that his character goes out, I, I thought, you know, and here I was just complaining about dragging in characters from original trilogies. But in this case, I was like, hey, perfect use of an original character and a good way to make that character actually have some importance. Uh, you know, Sly... Sly Sly Noodles? Sly Soodles? I, I never say her name right, but she's the uh, singer from Jabba's Palace, and, and we actually witness her kind of, in a sense, become an assassin. And I, just a sight of the character, I never saw coming. It was a total floored me moment. It, so much so, I almost did not catch the fact that, that Zero took a blaster to the chest and died. And I was like, wait, whoa, wait, huh? Because there was conflicting woes going on in that moment. Yeah, I thought it was very cool and yet weird the way they use Cy Snoodles here. And granted, it leaves some question over her previous materials in the EU, but to have her essentially have turned into a, a, a spy, someone who's out for their own good, kind of explains her being part of uh, Jabba's Palace and such in the first place. You know, so you know, why would she associate her with herself with that sort of people and such? And then we get that weird, creepy love story going on. Until and remember, this is also the episode in which we get big bad mama hut. <sighs> um, until finally, yeah, Zero takes a blaster shot. Of course, this left us saying what? Because remember, the Jedi Alliance video game features Zero free and takes place uh, at least we thought sometime late in season one or maybe even further along down in the timeline. Only for us to find out in Assassin that Zero was still in prison since the Clone Wars film, which meant it couldn't take place after the Clone Wars film, and yet Ahsoka was there with Anakin. And then we find out here that, well, as soon as he does get out of prison, he pretty much immediately dies, which meant that there was no way for Jedi Alliance to take place in a way that made any sense except the somewhat crazy notion of setting it during the Clone Wars film which wouldn't have made sense necessarily because, you know, Obi-Wan's in it, Anakin's in it, Ahsoka's in it, only to find out, yes, that is the solution that is the official answer to when the <laughs> game takes place. They just say that, well, you know all those parts where you're Ahsoka, Anakin, or Obi-Wan? Since you can choose other characters to play as when you replay it, well, 
actually it's other characters on those missions, not Ahsoka, Anakin, or Obi-Wan. Kind of a clumsy wow. way of fitting in a game that had no idea that Zero was going to eventually wind up dying. While the game, although interestingly enough, um, does include some Night Sisters that are designed a little bit more like uh, what we see in the series. Of course, this episode is also the one that gives us the great appearance of Quinlan Voss in the yeah. series that everyone was psyched about, right? Quinlan Voss, uh, a character created essentially for the comics, but based on the look of a character in Mos Espa in uh, episode one that hadn't gotten any background information and whatnot, became a great character, um, struggling with the dark side, goes undercover during the Clone Wars, or at least we thought went undercover during the Clone Wars for a big chunk of it uh, as Corto Voss and everything, uh, this well-beloved character from the pages of Republic. Turned into, in this series, basically what seems like a a beach bum kind of dude. Like, it could have been Bill and Ted and Quinlan's excellent adventure. Right, Kenobi, right. This is a righteous big mama hut. And again, do we need the character in there? It was cool to see him. Did we need him thrown in with a very different personality in a different circumstance just so they could say, Hey, look, look, see, Quinlan Boss is here. We know Star Wars too. That... I didn't like. I mean, it's nice to see him recognized by Filoni and by Lucas, but when you and, – and that's the thing, I think, with the way a lot of times that the EU references are made in this series is that they try to show a respect for the EU and an interest in the EU and that they know about the EU by bringing in characters, situations, ship designs, planets, whatever from the EU and using them as a tip of the hat. It's why they've got that trivia gallery with every episode on StarWars.com. We can go through and see the quick little references that they managed to put in and where certain things came from and such. Um, but a lot of times, not more recently, but especially early on, uh, and this is about mid-series, they would do stuff like this where, yeah, they'd use it, and instead of making people smile because they used it, they annoy people because they use it in a way that is so different or so contradictory to what we'd seen before that it wasn't a cool use of the character, it felt like a bastardization of the character. And Quinlan Voss mm -hmm. is a great example of this. I mean, he is, uh, to the EU, bringing in an unnecessary character and altering things because of that, or looking like you're altering at least his personality because of that, what Greedo was to the film characters being pulled in in the same way. And they've gotten better at this, but at the time, I mean... I don't know. I guess they expected us to say, woohoo, it's Quinlan Voss. But no, instead it was a, you've got to be kidding me. This is what you think Quinlan Voss is. Um, granted, Lucas can do whatever he wants, but if you're purposely making this a reference to the EU for those EU fans, then don't do it. Uh, you're basically shaking my hand at the same time you're flipping me the bird with the other one. Yeah, exactly. That gets back to that feeling of like they were setting up of division in fandom. You would have the Clone Wars fans that had seen nothing but the Clone Wars hearing about, oh, an EU characters coming in. Yeah, getting excited. The character shows up. Yeah, we're excited. And then suddenly watching as the EU friends are acting in revulsion. And they're like, what's, what? can't you just cope? You know, and then they get angry with that. And there was this whole back and forth as to whether or not you lied something or not. And, and if you ever have ever participated in Twitter, 140 characters is never enough to tell that you can see both sides of a story. So if you even comment one way or the other, boy, you're automatically in that camp. And that uh, that was really frustrating. And at this point, you know, as you say, we don't have that kind of feeling as much now. But yeah, at this time, it was like the, the bouncing around of the episodes. Everyone was like, what in the hell is going on? 
And then every time one of these EU characters would come in, they would just basically, for all intents and purposes, just poodoo all over them. It's like, whoa, do we even care about what Star Wars came before? Is anything <laughs> sacred? It reminds me, I mean, I, I had to laugh there. It, something struck me. Uh, thank goodness for the mute button. Um, that the use of Quinlan Boss in this episode and the way that, that sometimes some of these EU references were used, and this may be an exaggeration, I may be taking it to an absurd extreme uh, for the sake of satire, but bear me out here. It's the equivalent of the difference between uh, someone, some white guy who's trying to be cool and fit in with his black friends walking up to them, and when they say the N-word ending with a G-G-A, instead of coming up and saying, how you doing? And using the N-word with a G-G-E-R. If you're not going to use it the way it's meant to use it, using it doesn't make you part of the in-crowd. Using just is about <laughs> to get your butt beaten. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that is correct because that, that was, there was a, a, a large contingent of EU fans that felt like, okay, we need to go to war. You know, like we need, we need to tell them what's going on. And then you had the petition of 2000. And, you know, and I admit I signed it. I, I want all my Star Wars to play together or defined universes where those universes play together, one or the other. And then you had other shows out there that were fans of the Clone Wars calling people that were doing that names and stuff. And, and, you know, and yet now here we're at a point where the Clone Wars could potentially be on the chopping block and you're seeing similar things in that regard. And yet this time there's no name calling. You know, everybody's kind of like, you know, either it's going to go or it won't. And uh, we either hope it will or it won't. But there's definitely a lot less name calling this time around. And for me, I think that was the thing. It was like most of the Clone Wars fans didn't have an idea of how large it was, the EU. And when they did, it was so big, it was overwhelming. And that was where that whole overwhelming aspect came in. We got to make this less overwhelming for those fans. And as an EU fan that's been enjoying everything else, it's like, you know, what are you going to do for us? You know, you, you keep doing all these great things to bring in these new fans that have nothing about it. And what are you going to do for us? Oh, you bring in an EU character, but then you put it all over him. That, that, that wasn't nice. That actually was, was a backhanded slap to my face. That wasn't a good thing. You're still giving these new fans all these presents. Where are my presents? What the heck? I want some presents too. I've been here for 10 plus years absorbing all this stuff in. I'm learning what I need to learn. Where's my gifts? Quit crapping on my gifts, Lucas. See, now for me, I do like some of the characters they've given us, especially once we get to this time jump. I think Clone Wars really started to come into its own, especially this season, but also in season four, and at least to a degree in parts of the latter half of season three. It's just, to me, it's a question of you can do things that are cool and just add enough explanation within what you're doing that it fits for new fans and old fans. Kind of like what I'm crossing my fingers we're going to wind up seeing with uh, everything in this ongoing new Star Wars series, Star Wars Volume 2 that I've been collecting all these different variants of and spending way too much money on. Um, is it meant to fit? They're trying to get it to. Is it meant to be uh, reader-friendly? Yes. Um, but they have their little references in there, so hopefully it'll wind up being something that manages to appeal to both groups. Um, but appeal to both. Don't just appeal to one. This, of course, though, is the point in the season where we do that big time jump. Uh, we go from episode 9 of the season to episode 10. We jump about two years or so into the future, and we get the storyline that begins with heroes on both sides. And that was kind of cool to see. 
Of course, Heroes on both sides gives us uh, a new character model, uh, for instance, for Ahsoka. She goes from the, what I still think is kind of an inappropriate 14-year-old wearing a miniskirt and a, a midriff or tube top or whatever as a Jedi, to being someone in a more functional attire, granted still with the boob window thing going on in this case. Um, but a little bit more mature attire, a little bit older character, uh, presumably 16 going on 17, which isn't, I mean, I teach that age. That's not an adult, uh, Lucasfilm. But in some societies in the past, it has been. And given, uh, given modern day mores, I guess I'd, I should be glad that she wasn't dressed even skankalier, um, than, uh, the inappropriate dress, I still think, for the earlier version. So I like the new look for her. We get to see a new look very soon for Obi-Wan and for Anakin. You know, they kind of up their game in that sense, and we get a the beginning, actually the first the first two episodes after the time jump here are the first two parts of three with another episode that we've already seen. We have Heroes on Both Sides, followed by Pursuit of Peace, which is then followed by the season two episode, Senate Murders, which is unique in that it's the only episode produced prior to the time jump that actually takes place after the time jump because it does not include Anakin, Ahsoka, or Obi-Wan, thereby not needing to include the new character models. That was a, a very interesting thing to find that and be like, you know what? Wow! It actually can fit there. Um, again, another odd way of telling the story years apart, but I like the idea that uh, we get to meet Lux Bonteri, we get to see uh, Ahsoka starting to have a little bit of a crush, it introduces him, and he's going to wind up playing a role, of course, later on. Uh, and we get a sense that maybe they're starting to delve a little bit more into these political themes of what really is right, what really is wrong, what makes a good guy a good guy or a bad guy a bad guy. You know, in fact, that Heroes on Both Sides plot and the uh, romantic love interest therein actually has me thinking about the uh, season six potential where we could go. I mean, you know, certain characters are uh, no longer part of certain orders and now could potentially, uh, you know, explore some relationships now on Mandalore. I don't know. Very interesting there. I, I think, you know, for me, the aspect about this, and, and it goes just beyond the Clone Wars, even in the EU, anytime you deal with a character learning about the other character or another culture's background, their points of view and things like that, those are always the ones where you get the more understanding, the most understanding out of it. You know, you really get behind both sides. You kind of get their point of views. You get their their reasons why they think or don't think certain ways. Uh, you know, watching how Ahsoka, because when I watch this, Ahsoka was the, the watcher's point of view. You know, she was being introduced to everything, and yet she still had the, the ideals that we're supposed to be taking with us that we don't all know about because not everybody's been following it as long. But so she's that reference, you know, and we're watching how she's going through it. And so you're there with her as she's learning about both sides. And well, wait, there could be good to the separatist side. Which, you know, if you've been reading the books, you've already known that. The Palpatine has been setting up what will be the good guys. He's been, you know, I mean, he's leading, he's got bad guys leading most of them. But for the most part, the, the rank and file, the people that are on the separatist side are really trying to do the right thing. They're just not going about it in the right ways because the higher ups are all a bunch of crooked, evil people because the Sith Lord put them in power. And I just, I love the way it all played out in that episode, the, the, Jumping forward, that I remember, you know, they told us, so that wasn't too shocking. I remember when we got the trailers for that season, though, people were like, well, wait, what's going on? And we're seeing new models here. Obi-Wan looks different. Ahsoka's got a different costume. So there was a lot of uh, attention at this point really hitting on the trailers. 
Um, you know, I, I want to say after the second season and then this one especially, people were starting to say that the uh, the theme that they were saying for each one, I believe uh, the second one was Rise of the Bounty Hunters and stuff like that, and people were like, these aren't really following along. Like, what? we didn't see any Rise of the Bounty Hunters. We saw some Bounty Hunters, but... You know, and that starts playing up too, where we're watching it really kind of focus in on what they're saying is happening is really starting to happen. You know, not like when we get the first two seasons, it's all crazy. Now they're actually like, well, from this point on, it'll all be straight. They're they're actually now trying to to calm the fans at this point instead of well, just keep waiting, just keep waiting, just keep waiting. They get to season three and they're like, we better start calming these guys down or we're gonna lose them. Uh, the secrets revealed season. Uh, where they finally start to go in chronological order. Although, granted, again, a big part of the reason why they couldn't before was the character models. I can see why. It's just it was made it very difficult uh, to follow along with the series early on. Now, this is where, as we hit the second half of this season, episodes 12 through, I guess it was 17, wind up being a, a pair of trilogies that always, to me, when I see them, it's the... <laughs> And you're like, you expect like, like steam and like demonized to come out. This is where things went uh, really uh, over the top in terms of what they thought they could do with the series and really gave us some amazing visuals and very impactful stories, granted, though, with one of them not making a whole heck of a lot of sense. Um, the first of these, of course, is the Night Sisters trilogy, which did get an airing. Uh, uh, for select audiences as a cut-together film, which was later released as that cut-together film uh, on iTunes, but which we, of course, saw on television as three individual episodes, Night Sisters, Monster, and Witches of the Mist. And this, of course, brings in the Night Sisters into the mix. Um, we find that Asajj used to be, or is, a Night Sister, which was new. Um, as opposed to her previous background, though we do see some flashbacks that tie into her previous EU background, which was uh, an interesting drop-in there. We find that uh, the Knight Brothers are also on Dathomir, that Dathomir looks a little bit different, and the Knight Brothers are the ones with these tattoos, so Maul's tattoos are essentially Knight Brothers tattoos, not Sith tattoos, which, again, I'm sure was a big shock to uh, Darth Crate and his one Sith, uh, who all did their faces like that. Um, but we see the conversion of uh, Maul, Darth Maul's brother, one of his apparent brothers, uh, Savage Opress, turned into the hulking monstrous beast type character. He winds up going on missions uh, until finally put under the command of Dooku as a, an assassin, basically, working for Asajj. We, we get uh, to see the Republic Commandos bringing back dead Jedi bodies as we get towards the latter part of the storyline. We finally get to see a cool battle between Asajj and Savage Opress against Count Dooku in an arc that's mostly focused on the bad guys, quite frankly, but is an arc that ends with probably the biggest surprise revelation of the entire season, which is, oh, by the way, your brother Darth Maul, he's still alive out there. He didn't actually die in The Phantom Menace. He's out there somewhere, and now you must find him, which, of course, uh, foreshadowed the eventual arrival of Maul in the series in Season 4 and his major role in Season 5. This is really one of the high points of the series, though it does wind up being very controversial because of the whole issue of introducing the idea of Maul, um, bringing in the Night Sisters, which wound up playing out fairly well, bringing in Asajj, changing her backstory a little bit for that, and, of course... 
we have the documentary on the season three DVD set and Blu-ray set in which Katie Lucas basically takes credit for creating the Night Sisters and this woman-based society based on a book she read when she had nothing to do with that since they were created by Dave Wolverton back in the early 90s for the courtship of Princess Leia. Uh, it was an interesting trilogy, um, awesome blockbuster-type story, but at the same time, frustrating in some ways for those of us who've been paying attention over the years um, within this midpoint of the season. See, for me, I found my interest was was the most peaked during this. I mean, we, we had Savage Opress, we had Feral, maybe Opress, we don't know what his name is, and we had Darth Maul Opress. I'm assuming Opress is all their last name. I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, and, and, and Savage. Now, here's a character. I'm always botching names. Koran, Koran, you know, Leia, Lair, Lair. Uh, you know, doesn't matter. But we've got Savage Opress, who is named Savage Opress. Now, if that is Savage Opress, I don't want to hear I'm saying it wrong anymore. Because, obviously, it doesn't matter what we say. Because there's just a certain way you pronounce things in Star Wars, and it's not how they're spelled. I no, mean, see, I, I, it's 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 Sauvage Oppress instead of Savage Oppress as opposed to Oppress. Um, it's just like when people want to feel like they're uh, uh, better off financially than they are. When they go to Target, they call it Target. He's just trying to yeah. seem a little more frou-frou. Well, see, I just I, – I think I'd have been okay with the name if they had put a, common, uh, a comma or a hyphen in the name somewhere, you know, like Qui-Gon or Obi-Wan. I, 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 that was the part that threw me off. I was like, but that's not how you spell Savage. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, I liked the look of the planet. You know, yeah, it, it was a slightly different look from what we come to expect on Dathomir. And like with the Mandalorian arc, I've already come to the conclusion that just because a planet is one giant ecosystem – and George likes to make them that way, doesn't necessarily mean they are that way. I mean, you know, you could see one whole half of the planet. It would be totally different from the other half of the planet. Could be. I mean, look at our planet, how many different places there are. So the fact that it didn't quite line up with what we had in the EU didn't necessarily bother me so much. I immediately wrote that off. Well, obviously, they're in a different spot on the planet. Uh, Maul's background, at first, I was like, well, I remember getting an insider packet that gave me this really cool little patch with Maul from Iridonia. And all this kind of stuff, all these little cool little fun facts that they give you. Uh, you know, it, it, that gets back to that kind of feeling like you slapped in the face. You're not really, but you get the feeling like you are. It's like, why tell me that these are the events that they are when they're not? I feel like I've just been lied to. I spent money on a lie. <laughs> that aspect of it's never fun. I mean, that's why you have things like the petition of 2000 where they're asking, you know, can we just try a little harder to make everything work? You know, if you got a character that it's not quite going to work, it's going to ruin something in another story or book or work or comic that's already came, create a new character. This is a fictional universe. You don't have to keep using the same five characters. We don't have to stick Anakin and Obi-Wan in every single adventure. And I think that's the part where I get frustrated. But at least they, you know, that we have James Lucino's Darth Plagueis novel that tries to give us some ways to sort of uh, tie together the Iridonian background idea along with, you know, the Knight Brothers idea and Dathomir and everything, giving uh, at least a little bit of the idea that he was born on Iridonia, immediately brought to Dathomir and then quickly handed over, apparently, by his wife, Cassina, I think was her name, to uh, Palpatine slash Sidious to raise. It, it only removed a couple of tales, at least as far as his early days go. Um, there's still some question as to what it's going to remove or affect of his later stuff, because we do get 
granted, old wounds in which he returns uh, was non-canon in the first place. And he's a doppelganger in Resurrection. But there was a story called Phantom Menaces, which it was always ambiguous as to uh, how it was going to fit in the continuity or not, because it was from Star Wars Tales, in which a scientist has recovered Maul's brain and used it to create that solid-state hologram version of Maul that fights Luke Skywalker. So I'm assuming that is probably out, or just he finds the brain, just not where he claims to have found it. But if you want to talk about confusion and frustration in something that should have been freaking awesome... I think that uh, at least the last arc, the Knight Brothers arc and Knight Sisters arc, I think that worked for the most part. But then we get the three-episode arc that wound up informing a big chunk of Fate of the Jedi, the Mortis trilogy. Uh, we have Overlords, Altar of Mortis, and Ghosts of Mortis, um, in which uh, Anakin, Ahsoka, and Obi-Wan wind up inside the Mortis monolith on this planet Mortis, that reacts to the Force use on Mortis and find themselves meeting, uh, it's almost like Tython in that sense, and the, and the, the monolith looks so much like a Thoyor from Dawn of the Jedi, I hope there's a purposeful connection there. Um, but we get this idea that the balance of the Force does not mean what Lucas has been saying that it meant. Because Lucas has been talking about for years, uh, and in interviews, especially like uh, when talking about mythology, this idea that what is good is what is natural. So nature is good. Nature by itself will bring itself back to an equilibrium of good, and it is evil that is a cancer, that is an unnatural thing that should not be there. So balance to the Force does not mean two Jedi, two Sith, one Jedi, one Sith. It means good wipes out evil and good prevails. Apparently not anymore, or at least not on Mortis, because here we have the idea that there is the father, the son, and the daughter, these Force beings known as the Ones, and they essentially maintain balance on Mortis. Uh, daughter represents the light side. Son, uh, played by Sam Witwer, which is pretty awesome, represents the dark side. And father is the one that keeps those two in balance. And as their power grows, the Mortis itself shifts towards light and dark. And as goes Mortis, so goes the galaxy. Because if things shift toward darkness, uh, things become more chaotic outside in the galaxy at large. Uh, hence the Clone Wars and such. And Father and is that weak. work was always confusing. I mean, I've never understood that aspect, and they gave us no explanation. None at all. We've got this idea that the Father is growing weaker, and he needs Anakin to take his place as the one who will bring balance to the Force and take Father's place. That that is what the Chosen One is supposed to do. Granted, Anakin decides not to and winds up leaving things somewhat in chaos by the time that he leaves. But the story revolves around the son wanting to corrupt Anakin, use the dark side to essentially overthrow his father and become the new ruler of Mortis and the one who can escape into the galaxy at large and spread uh, his own power base and such. So the first two episodes revolve around the son's plot to eventually find a way to kill his own father. And for this, apparently, according to the daughter who gives it to Obi-Wan, you need the dagger of Mortis because that is the one thing that can kill one of the ones. So he wants to kill his father in the first episode. He wants to kill his father in the second episode, uh, during which he tries to kill his father and accidentally winds up stabbing his sister instead. She dies because she was killed with the dagger, and now things are tilting toward darkness because there is no one to represent the light side. Then in the third episode, those rules are tossed out the window. Because apparently now the only way to destroy the son is basically to give him what he wants. Because the son wants to kill the father. 
But by killing the father, he makes himself vulnerable where he can be killed. So the father kills himself, thereby making the son vulnerable so Anakin can kill him. So he got what he wanted, but at the end, it's not what he wanted because it was his downfall and what? That they threw away the rules of the first two episodes of this trilogy to give us the third. And, I mean, unless this is some kind of thing where it's more like Highlander, right? Uh, I have everything! I know everything! Where the person who does the killing somehow takes in the power. So if he kills his father, he gets his father's power. But if father kills himself, he doesn't get the power, and instead he's vulnerable? Unless it's something like that, the end of this trilogy of episodes made no freaking sense whatsoever with the rules well, that they established in the first two. Beautiful images, beautiful sequences. Um, the battle with Anakin dominating uh, the beast forms of the son and daughter was incredible. Some of the best visuals we got this entire season and the entire series up to this point. And a good introduction to Sam Witwer to the series. But why mm -hmm. not make sure the last part of the story fits the first two and what is going on? See, I only saw these one time. Uh, this one... You know, each each one, one time only, and I wanted to go back because it is a very confusing one. But I kind of come away with the feeling that there was a catch with being the, the brother and the sister or the son and the daughter in the aspect of had the son done what he was thinking, I think he would have become mortal either way. I think that was the catch. Uh, but again, there was so much unexplained that I, I don't know. Like, did they just want to confuse the heck out of us, or did they actually expect us to understand or figure something out by watching something? There was like just with the aspect of the the Mortis monolith and how what was going on in there affected everything out there. What was that connection? Why was that connection? None of that was explained. There was no no myth involved. No you know old tales. None of that. And then when it's all said and done, it's like, was it a dream? We don't even know. And that, I think, was the aspect of it that bothered me the most, that it was left in such a shroud of mystery that even Filoni didn't know what in the hell was going on. Or at least he didn't seem to, or at least he wouldn't tell us, because, of course, this is where the Season 3 Blu-ray set gave the biggest middle finger to the audience. Because they advertise on the cover of it that uh, there's the Secrets of Mortis documentary on there. Woohoo! We finally get to know what was up with that. What is going on in Lucas's head? Filoni's head? What did it all mean? And instead we get this teeny tiny little blurb that basically has Filoni saying, Yeah, we wanted to do a documentary about this. And uh, as you notice, uh, there isn't one. We're like, wait a second, aren't we watching it? No, 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 no. We're just not going to tell you anything because Lucas doesn't want to. And cut. Really? Yeah, that... That and the whole snubbing of Dave Wolverton made the extras on this Blu-ray release the most frustrating of any Star Wars releases. Even more frustrating than the recent release of the so-called Complete Saga that didn't include any of the deleted scenes that we got on the DVD set. So that now we have to actually hang on to both of them to have all of the deleted scenes when they uh, certainly could have. Um, wow. But yeah, there was – this was the – I mean this will, will go down in history alongside things like the uh, – uh, sunny day in a void, uh, sunny day in the void storyline um, that leaves me scratching my head as far as this series goes. How could you come up with something that is so freaking awesome and then just completely say by the end of it, well, we got to wrap this up. We've only got 25 minutes, so we're going to just change some stuff and hope the audience doesn't notice. Um, that frustrates me. 
Um, there was also, though, some really good visuals in this. We had uh, a, a character model of Shmi Skywalker, Qui-Gon Jinn's Force Ghost showed up. Were they visions? Were they Force Ghosts? Was it the Force using the sun to create them, to tell the tale to the person? You, there's all that aspect of it. We saw Ahsoka seeing a vision of her future self, the future self warning her of the dangers that will happen to her if she remains Anakin's Padawan. Hmm, kind of preluding things for season five's finale, maybe? I would like to think so. Uh, a lot of really cool aspects like that. There was a lot of really cool in this, but I think the aspect of them leaving it more for the audience to decide what is and what isn't was a mistake. And I guess we should also give the tip of the hat to the fact that in those visions, um, we got Pernilla August as Shmi Skywalker and Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn. They brought back yeah. the film actors, and you couldn't even get... get Liam Neeson to come back for episode three, it seems like. Um, we, how rushed the end of that is, I talked about recently on the sequel cast. But, you know, it, it again, it's a, it's the, the episodes that should have had everything going for them and been the big shockers. You know, they talk about the origin of the Force, though not really. That's not really what's going to be in the episode. But it wound up, I was so let down by that last episode, as you can plainly tell, uh, and how they, they abandoned their own, their own rules. We then got... Uh, two more story arcs before the end of the season. Uh, episodes 18 through 20 was the Citadel arc in which we meet Tarkin. We'll have Tarkin for the first time in this series. We see a break into a prison and escape from a prison. Some great battle sequences and whatnot. Lo a nice sense of peril. The Citadel, of course, in this is also uh, what the training set up back in Clone Cadets. The first episode of this season was based on, which I thought was pretty cool. But, again... For the continuity-minded, this was another, aw, oh, man, really? Because we had Even Peel, Even Peel, brought into the show um, in a big way in this arc, only to wind up dying uh, prior to when he was, at least EUI, supposed to die, given the fact that he dies in the beginning part of one of the books of the Coruscant Knights trilogy and is referenced constantly as the Jedi Master of Jack's Pavan. Now... What we're told is that, well, yeah, he died before, and the Lannick Jedi Master we actually see isn't even Peel, even though he's named that way in the books. And uh, yes, Jax Pavin trained with Evan Peel, but not at the end. He had a different master at the end. And they're going now so ambiguous that in The Last Jedi, they won't refer to Jax Pavin's master by name at all. They just constantly say, his master, his master, his master, his Jedi master, his master. Um, a great action-oriented arc. Uh, great character moment opportunities for Ahsoka. Finally, the introduction of Tarkin, which of course is going to build up to the end of Season 5, where we see Tarkin playing a big role again. Um, just that one head nod or head shaker of what happened with uh, Evan Peel, which makes me wonder, I think this may have actually been around the time that uh, the jokes about me singing on Republic Forces so much um, led me to create that parody song, uh, Dirt Off Your Tunic, uh, based on Dirt Off Your Shoulder by... Jay-Z, we may have to work that into one of these episodes, like maybe after the credits or something like that at some point. Yeah, let's slip it in as a blooper. We could do it this one. You'll send me the file. Yeah, we'll get that hooked up. from strong to because of the No continuity. Got a part in chief and not solving all the mess in a day. What can you say? You know, I, I like the fact that Tarkin showed up. 
Uh, uh, real quick, back to Mortis. You know, one of the other things that we saw in the visions, we saw Anakin as Vader. Uh, we saw the uh, episode three fight, things like that in the flashbacks and stuff. And then going from that to having Tarkin kind of show up, I, I don't know what it is about Tarkin himself, but every time that guy shows up in his uniform, I immediately look at everything in the scene around him and suddenly it all looks very Imperial. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, the last arc especially was like every scene with that guy in season five, it was like, wow, like, are we already on the Death Star? And we started getting that here in Citadel with the way his, his presence, his bearing is. I mean, just, just, just everything about that character is... To me, what sets up what I disliked about him in episode four, you know, the, the vulture-like aspect of it, the, the, the very short, very he's very pro-military and anti-everything else, uh, you know, just my way or the highway. And, and it comes across. Steve Stanton does a wonderful job voicing Tarkin here. I just, I love it. Great, great, great character. I think for me, that character was probably one of the highlights of this arc was was seeing him in there him having a bigger role his bantering back and forth with anakin and ahsoka all that yeah i did love i mean i love seeing tarkin in here it's great to see him and anakin starting to build up some of that seeing things at least somewhat eye to eye and what as far as the jedi role in the galaxy um i i'm kind of surprised that i didn't think to even mention when talking about the immortal stuff the whole vision of of what we see in the future with Anakin seeing Vader. But of course they did that convenient, I'm just going to tap you on the forehead and you're not going to remember it anyway. So <laughs> who gives a crap type of moments, the, the reset button. Um, now this season, of course, ends with a two-parter as opposed to a three-parter. Um, in this case, we get Padawan Lost and Wookiee Hunt. Ahsoka captured by Trandoshans, uh, taken to a planet where they get to essentially play like a running man type of thing, where they are the ones being hunted as opposed to wild game. And it is during this arc that we see the arrival of a character who so far has only been in the series just the once, Chewbacca. Um, we see him in episode three. We know he's active during this time period. We get to see him interacting with Ahsoka in a knockdown drag out fight with some Wookiees versus some Trandoshans. I mean, honestly, for a season ender, seeing Chewbacca it was awesome. But it didn't really seem like it had the, the oomph of the big event moment, kind of like we got with uh, last season with the Boba Fett stuff or next season when we wind up seeing the stuff with Maul returning. But it made for a solid story. I'm just I, – I didn't really feel the, the explosive power of the season ender of this season like I did back in 2 or like I will in 4 or 5. But at least it was more than one episode uh, standing alone That's uh, like the way that they did with season 1. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. I mean, Chewie, it was great seeing him there. Uh, you know, he, in fact, his Clone Wars action figure is a very detailed figure. I have a picture of it up on our uh, Facebook page. I, I swear it is like looking right into the eyes of the actor wearing a mask. They've done such a good job of capturing the human feel of the eyes. Uh, and, and yeah, it was a very kind of eh, ending to the season. Uh, but yeah, it, they sold it all on Chewie. I mean, everybody was seeing Chewie come in and, you know, you've got all the classics of, of what to come to expect with the Clone Wars. Wait, Chewie's going to be in this. How are they going to screw that up? You know, and they didn't, they did a really good job with it. I, I enjoyed that arc. I thought it had a very kind of pest moment, you know, with them being hunted down and all that. Uh, I like that. You know, you, you said running man. I, I just, I don't know for me, that aspect of it, watching the trans oceans, hunt them, watching the, watching Chewie start tearing them up and stuff. That was cool. That was good fun. And you get to see Chewie do kind of his uh, technological side. You know, he gets to rebuild things and fix things and kind of in a sense, he, he got to be just as much a hero as Ahsoka did. That's true. 
So I guess we could say, kind of to round things out, that this was a season that, in my opinion at least, it, it took a turn for the better. It's when Ahsoka really started to come into her own. I think the series started to come into its own, though not entirely yet. Um, I certainly like the, the look of the show and the feel of the show after the time jump much more than before the time jump. And they've set some important things in place. Uh, Ventress being away from Dooku, albeit causing people to shake their heads and wonder how obsession and such could possibly still happen now, which presumably it won't, at least not Asajj's part in it. Um, uh, bringing in Tarkin, bringing in Savage Opress, the hint that Maul is still alive out there somewhere. And um, we've really got some great foundations laid here that wind up paying off a season or two seasons down the line. So I think this is definitely a pivotal turning point of the series, um, and the best that it had been thus far, but it's not going to be able to hold a candle, really, in my opinion, to seasons four or five uh, as we get to those. The thing I like about seasons four, and especially seasons five, it plays into this so well, is that the elements that we see here that we didn't realize were going to tie together, all tied together. We got Mandalore, we got the Dathomir witches, we got Darth Maul and his brother, and yet come season five, all of that is taking place almost in one episode. You're just like, whoa! And it's all right here. You know, you, know, you, you say it's breaking stride. I, I call this the hump day. You know, it's like we're just getting over the hump. It's all smooth sailing from here. Once they got the, the chronological order kind of set down, from here on it just seems like they're working on the, the character models. You know, we saw that, that, that season jump and the models jump in their quality. We start to see the faces jump in quality as they continue to go. So it, it's one of those things where from here on out, it starts to take that running pace. You know, you, you really start to feel like, okay, here we go. Now we're getting somewhere. We've got a foundation of episodes to give us some story. Granted, they were thrown all over the place. But now we're at a point where we can take what we have, build it together. And in some of these places, you didn't even realize they were part of a larger arc. And now these one-off episodes now become something even bigger than they once were. And that was a really fun aspect of it. Granted, there was a lot of complaining and, and, and Mitchie Mitcherton moments for me and other EU fans out there when we're like, what in the heck is going on here? But the nature of this beast and the, the marketing and the, the money aspect of how they build the models and all that apparently precedented that this had to be done that way. So, you know, we got to take it with a grain of salt and unlearn what we've learned and relearn the right order of these. That's right. Unfortunately, it'll be much, much easier to deal with as we move into uh, the future seasons. Now, before Mark uh, sends us out here, I did want to make one quick mention. I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment uh, to note the winner of a contest we had going on a little while ago. We had a contest going to win a first printing newsstand copy of Star Wars Volume 2 Number 1 by Brian Wood along with a slightly little like little edge wrinkly type uh, copy of the second printing just kind of as a bonus tossed in there though the main prize of course was that first printing newsstand copy because those things sold out like crazy very very quickly um the winner of that contest here for both of those from the show was quint ashburn so congratulations to quint out there and uh if it hasn't arrived yet it will be arriving very soon there will be more contests in the future i got to kind of figure out what exactly it is that we're going to have for those so uh just kind of keep listening for details here on the show we'll announce it here and of course uh, most of the details will be run through our facebook page as usual facebook.com slash sw beyond films mark you want to take us away nah, 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 nah.
That about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us and sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes and can be found right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, no matter how you get there, they'll be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our Audible trial. If you want to go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what it's all about. You can explore more than 100,000 titles and jump right into the galaxy far, far away or explore a new genre without risk. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. You can ditch the Crystal Star and move to iJedi worry-free instead of paying for one that you didn't like. In this digital age, if you feel like making the switch from the page to the screen, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't put us the odds that we'll ever actually get a documentary that tells us what Lucas was thinking with Mortis.
Oh, my God.